0: and I want to honor your time this evening and waste none of it. Uh, I want to try to share some things that I'm working on and wrestling with in my heart and and just let's see where the Lord goes with this. I like to talk to you a little bit. I don't like to preach at you. I like to talk to you and I like to wrestle some stuff out a little bit because I think the honor is found in taking things to the mat. You know, God changed Jacob's name to Israel, which meant not prince with God. I heard that my whole life. Israel's prince with God. No, there's no Israelite that thought it meant prince with God. It was he who contends with the Lord. It's he who gets on the wrestling mat with God. You get on the wrestling mat with God, your hip gets popped out of socket and you get your name changed. What happens when you go to the mat with things bigger than yourself is you walk differently and you identify differently. And so Sometimes we just got to wrestle some things out, and I, I want to do that with you a little bit this weekend, and wrestle some things out, and talk to you a little bit about what the Lord's been saying in my life and my heart, and and maybe together we can have a clearer picture of Jesus. This is my my goal, my hope tonight, is to show you a little clearer picture of Jesus. How many of you are glad we don't we have a God who is out of the bookkeeping business? What I mean by that is that God is not keeping spiritual ledgers. He doesn't have an accountant's book where he's checking to see like Santa Claus that uh, you who's been naughty and nice and what you've done and how much you fasted this week and whether you've met your tithing quota for the month. And God's out of the bookkeeping business. Maybe you see that God, maybe in your theology, God was in the bookkeeping business. And I'll give you that. You can have that God was in the bookkeeping business. I don't really agree that he ever was. I personally think that Jesus is what God looked like, Jesus is what God looks like, and Jesus is what God will always look like, and I think it's why Jesus frequently said, you have heard it said, but I say to you, uh, what you heard said wasn't right, let me tell you what's the truth, and so, but if you want a God that used to be a bookkeeper, okay, but he's not a bookkeeper God anymore, he's not keeping a ledger and keeping accounts on how good we've been, and yet, He's not keeping count, but man, I want this to count. You know what I mean? I want what I do to count, and I'm wrestling with how can it count if God doesn't count? You know what I mean? Like If God's not keeping count, he's not stacking stuff up in the ledger to go, Paul's read enough, Paul's fasted enough, Paul's given enough, Paul's prayed enough. But I want what I do here to count. I don't just mean in this conference, I mean on this earth. I I, I want it to count for the kingdom. I I want it to count for my dad. I I want it to count in the way that makes the cross worthy of saving the wretch like me. and I know it is whether I make it count or not. My, what, my actions do not lessen the authority of what Christ did at Calvary. They don't improve what Jesus did in raising from the dead. I, I don't make him more alive if I preach better. or I don't make him more relevant if I find some way to, be, to, to, to come up with a clever interpretation of Scripture. That's not what I'm talking about. I think it came alive in me watching my son graduate last Sunday. We went to Nebraska, and my son walked across the platform and graduated from college and got his degree. And I cried like a baby. And I'm not much of a crier, but I couldn't stop crying. You know, it was just it was it was just gushing out of me. And and yes, part of it was joy that I don't owe any more tuition. I will give you that. Granted, it was partly, it was all joy, just maybe some of it was selfish joy, that's it, that's the difference, but when he walked across, I had a reminder of when I took him to school four years ago, and I think when I was here, he was ending his freshman year there, and and I remember saying to him, son, make it all count. I didn't really think anything about that statement, like what that means, or if that puts some kind of pressure on a kid or, you know, whatever, he's trying to find his way in the world, but what does it mean to make it count? And then when he walked across there and he received that degree, and then that pride kind of swelled in your heart, and when I hugged him in the parking lot, and he and I are not emotional with each other, but I couldn't form words, I just kind of bumbled and mumbled, and tears came out, and... And I said, I'm so proud of you because you made it all count. Like you did something with it. And that moment, the Holy Spirit started swelling in me about the things I've been praying to him about what it looks like to make this work, to make this work out. And one of my... And I'll admit it to you, because we're talking here. I'm doing all the talking, you're listening, but not really. Because when you're up here, you're really talking. You don't know what you're doing, but you're causing little streams to move off. And then we go down a road we wouldn't have went down if it was just me and empty chairs. Because they're not empty anymore, and your spirit's just as alive as mine. And we're listening to the same Holy Spirit. And so let's follow that stream a little bit. And in that, I, I, I... I, I'm struggling a lot in, in a lot of grace circles, in a lot of places where it's, and I don't even like message of grace, where, you know, kingdom stuff, whatever. Put your title on what you want. We're talking about Jesus. We're disciples of Christ. And, and, and in a lot of these circles, it's become so taboo to even talk about any kind of outward expression of working for the Lord. Like you can't even say to people like, oh, you know, it'd be nice if we, uh, if, if we evangelized our neighbor. Go, oh, I don't want to get back into works. Like, we're freaked out about works. Like, the four letter word of the Grace Church is work. When you say that, you've just taken God's name in vain. Like, if you ever do anything at all, then that's somehow going to slide back. And listen, I get it. We got PTSD on religion. We do. We, we hear the grenade pen come out, and we go, I'm out. I don't want anything to do with this. He said, ought to, need to, should, I'm done right and I and I know we have that I've went through that myself I've lived that I wrestle with that I preach that I've even preached that I remember so brazenly early in my grace days if you're in a church and the man says ought to you ought to get up and walk out so you know what you reap what you sow it's all coming back to me now So they're walking out. So you know, I got to put up with that. I get it. But what what the struggle has become is how do we, as people of grace, people of the kingdom, people of Jesus, of the resurrection, the finished work, what do we do with this thing to make it count? Because man, I want it to count. And I don't mean I want brownie points. And I don't mean I want acknowledgement. And I don't mean I want God to lift me up. I I just want it to count. I want it to be worth something. I put my life into this to tell people about Jesus. I've laid it on the line to, to, to... that lost friends, lost connections. Sometimes you're out there hanging by yourself. You're just hanging by a thread, trying to live for Christ and do something to tell someone about the Lord. You want to make it count. I'm not asking God to take a ledger or, or, or see what I've done to stack it up, but I want to know what it would look like if it could count. And so that becomes the great challenge. What would it look like if it could count? And I think the Apostle Paul, in his very prescient manner, as he listens to the s- soft sounds of the Holy Spirit, and he lays out for us what we're often calling the new covenant or the, or the message of grace. Sometimes Paul reaches, just like Jesus did, he reached past his timeline, up into the future, and he'd grab kind of what's going on in our world, and he would say something so. Perfect. So, and, and, and if we aren't careful, we'll miss it because sometimes we're so context related of what's happening right inside the chapter that we forget that the Holy Spirit doesn't get trapped in chapters. and He doesn't get trapped in context. He uses it like a skeleton, but you got to put flesh on those bones. And then he reaches into our timeline and he says something to us about it. And I watched as the Apostle Pauls began to make his arguments, and he's the brilliant expositor of trying to make that separation between a world coming out of an old covenant and a world into a new covenant, to come out of a world who's begin to establish themselves upon. their actions for righteousness and into a world that can't establish itself for righteousness. And that's what we're doing in the covenantal preaching and grace preaching is trying to tell you that there's nothing that you can do to be righteous and there's nothing that you can do to be forgiven. Christ did everything. What you really do is meet his death with your death. You go into his death, and you come up in resurrection, and that resurrection starts now, but it ends somewhere in his infinite future. Whatever he looks like, you look like, and then you'll know him as he is, and they're just really walking out this baptism as you go, and the the beauty is, is that you can't really screw that up. That's the beauty of the new covenant is that you can't mess that up because Christ has done such a perfect job on your behalf, and therefore God shut the books of accounting because what more is there to stack up? And so we understand that. We see that. But we watch Paul lay out these allegories, like you get the Galatians 4, where Paul reaches back into the allegory of Sarah and Hagar and Ishmael and Isaac, and and he does something entirely inappropriate, but we're allowed to do as preachers, and that's take stuff that don't apply in one spot of the Bible, make it apply in another spot of the Bible, Uh, Jesus isn't in Noah's Ark, but if you've ever preached Noah's Ark, you better put Jesus there. (laughs) Otherwise, it's not going to make much sense, and your neighbor's going to build a boat. And so... Paul grabs the story of Sarah and Hagar, and he says, one's an old covenant, and the other one's a new covenant. Well, no, they're not. Not really. Not when you're reading the book of Genesis. Hagar's not an old covenant, and, but we're allowed to see all of these moments, these things that spark up in the Bible that show us Jesus in a brand new eye, and, and we get to see that through another lens, and so that lands me in Galatians 5. I want to read to you a verse to start with tonight. In Galatians chapter 5 I'm going to read from the NRSV verse 6 In Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything The only thing that counts is faith working through love And I want you to hear that phrase The only thing that counts, and that's what I'm looking for, because I want to make it count, and how do I make it count if God's not an accountant? Well, I know I can't make it count. He's not an accountant, and therefore, he's not keeping ledgers, but he does apparently want me to make it count because paul takes another allegory he he moves his way past hagar and sarah and ishmael and isaac cuz paul's prone to do that dropping an illustration shift gears dropping another one and so he decides then to pick up circumcision and he talks about circumcision as being a defining quality of judaism and that if you are circumcised then of course you, you, if you are circumcised, Paul says you're gonna have to keep the whole law because you're moving back underneath the mentality of a law keeper. He goes, this, so it'd be better for you to not be circumcised, but you may struggle with Paul right here because he goes and circumcises Timothy. And so we go, Paul, you're not really being all that on. You don't really believe Galatians five. I mean, otherwise, why would you circumcise Timothy if you really thought that by circumcising Timothy, he's not in Christ and now he's gotta keep the whole law. And I know we get scholarly arguments that Galatians was written pr- after that, that maybe he'd already transformed by the time he wrote Galatians. But how many of you know there ain't no reverse in circumcision? Not in that way. And so if Timothy's no lo- not in Christ, well, he's just no longer in Christ and now obligated to keep the whole law. And I know, I'm, I know I'm playing fast and loose, and I know I'm speaking from silence because we don't get to interview the Apostle Paul, but I also know this. Paul rounds his argument out in our verse because he gives up. He's made the argument that you shouldn't be circumcised because if you're circumcised, you keep the whole law. You need to be uncircumcised. You be in Christ. And then he goes, look, the truth of the matter is whether you are circumcised or you're not circumcised. Only one thing counts, which means circumcision doesn't count, and uncircumcision doesn't count, which means the entire first five verses of my Galatians 5 argument do not count. That's how I read it. He goes, so neither getting circumcised counts, not getting circumcised doesn't count, yet there is something that counts. In fact, it's the only thing that counts. And he goes, that would be faith operating through love. And that causes me to believe what was Paul trying to do. So I want to give you a theory. And I know we're working off of a theory here, but I, I think if you'll go with me, I think there's enough in the body of the work of the new covenant to help support this idea. I don't think that Paul randomly selects circumcision as the argument to hang his hat on in regards to The difference between an old covenant thinker and a new covenant thinker. In an old covenant world, you get circumcised. A new covenant world, not circumcised. His ultimate argument is it doesn't matter whether you did it or not, because in the end, the only thing that counts is that you're in Christ. So why did I pick circumcision if it doesn't matter one way or the other? Because he's a really good teacher, and he knows what he's doing. And so why, then, let's just pick a couple of examples of what he could have done that he didn't do and assume that maybe he didn't do it on purpose, for instance. If you choose to celebrate the Passover feast by taking a lamb into your house and keeping it for the prerequisite four days as a pet and then slaughtering it as your Passover lamb and then eating every part of it before the sun comes up, you have no part in Christ. For if you are to eat the Passover lamb, you must therefore keep all of the feast days. Why not? If you're going to use the circumcision argument, might as well throw Passover in there too. Or any of the feast days. Pick your favorite. Or how about this? If when you go to the temple, you're going to measure out your 10% so that you give the prerequisitely required amount to God, if you give your 10% but not your 11 You are bound to keep all of the rest of the laws. You would have been better off to have not given 10% at all than to have given 10%, for to give 10% means that you are not in Christ. And then he could have decided that's a little bit of overkill. Whether you give 10% or don't give 10%, only one thing really counts, and that is faith operating through love. I hope you see that Paul didn't do that. And why? Because I don't know of a modern church in America making that big of a deal over physical circ- circumcision. So what is the argument Paul's trying to make? And this, I believe, could be the landing spot. Paul chooses the institution of Judaism that is the most private, that is hidden, that nobody knows you do. Because of his Passover land, they watch you buy it. You talk about that lamb that's in your living room for four days that your kids have named Mary, and now you got to slaughter Mary at the end of four days because that's the Passover rules. And you're going to eat the whole thing, and you're going to tell them all about it, and you're going to put pictures of it on Facebook because it it ain't on there. It didn't happen at all. And you got Instagrams with you and the lamb and Mary and your kids crying and all hell's breaking loose. But bless God, people know you're holy because you did it out loud. Or maybe if you it's the tithe and then it's or the giving and so people see that and you celebrate your alms giving before men as Jesus said. Jesus even picked three physical ones like prayer and fasting and alms giving when he talked in the Sermon on the Mount about the things that we do external. And all of those would have been external, but Paul purposely chooses. A private ceremony, circumcision, one that you don't ever have to actually let anyone know that you've done, one that is in private, one that belongs strictly to you, and pardon the pun, but it works, and Paul used it before I did. He uses the private because it's on your privates. It literally means that nobody gets to see it. It's your personal faith. And then Paul gets to the end and goes, you know what I've decided is the only thing that actually counts is not your private salvation, but your outworking of your salvation through love. So if you want to make it count, it isn't about getting the right doctrine, memorizing the right thing, figuring out all of the arguments. It isn't about what the church, I think, unfortunately, has mastered. And that is the art of the private, personal conversion. The thing that belongs strictly to you that nobody has to know about, that nobody ever needs to know about. And yet all around you a world struggles and is in trouble and needs more than just the internal personal salvation afforded to us so much in the modern gospel. I think COVID showed us a lot of things, as Jamie said a moment ago. It showed us a lot of things about the church that needs to go, but it showed me a lot of things about me That needs to go who cares what I can see that needs to go in you the reality is is it doesn't matter what I see that needs to go in you I'm gonna have no problem finding the speck in your eye what the Lord recently showed me is the only reason you can ever find the speck in someone's eye is because it's just the end of the plank hanging out of your own eye it's the only part of the plank you can see is the speck in your neighbor Jesus, by the way, doesn't say when you see the speck in your neighbor's eye, make sure you don't have a plank in yours. That's how I preached that for a long time. No, Jesus actually says when you see the speck in your eyes, you know you have a plank in yours. Catch that? If I can see it in you, I can only spot it in you because I'm carrying my own. And so it was good for people like me. I'm naturally, honestly, being up here to be able to speak. I have no problem with public speaking. In fact, I loved it. It was my favorite school, my favorite class in college and in seminary. I love public speaking. What preacher doesn't enjoy public speaking? But by nature, I'm relatively an introvert uh, to the point that I don't feel like I need people, (laughs) like on the planet. especially on the road, they don't need to be there. How many of no one, just me? There's a couple honest people, God bless you. And it's so introverted that when COVID happened and everything, kind of the whole world went into their house, I was kind of like, I'm in the, I'm in my sweet spot, man. Heaven came down and glory filled my soul. Well, our ministry was strategically positioned because we've been basically content creators and, and video creators and audio creators for years now. It was where the Lord put us on that path in 2015, really expand that footprint, offer material, I'll fill your mouth. Keep that well deep and the water cool, and we just keep reaching into it. So COVID, it was like we were out ahead of the game. It was like everybody's catching up, doing zooms and everything, and I'm you know I'm out here doubling down uh, because that that what we were is what we are. What began to notice, and probably many did as well, that as that lifted, it became more difficult for people like us, me who had kind of went into that shell to break back out of that shell and to go, okay, now I got to go out and face the world. And, and in fact, I got pretty comfortable being a solo artist, if you know what I mean. If you don't know what I mean, I'm not sure I know what I mean other than the fact that it's become harder and harder and harder to engage. And I felt like the Holy Spirit began to speak to me about the condition of the church because... What has happened in almost every church that I have encountered is a drop precipitously in attendance that is only now slowly beginning to come back up. And the church is having to shift gears to try to figure out what are we going to do? What do we need to drop that we have done before? And part of it, I think, has to do with the fact that we are living in an age more than we have ever lived before and maybe we'll never be here again that is the literal age of the individual. You don't need anyone. You, can, you don't need anyone to go out to eat. They'll bring it to your door. You can watch what you want when you want on demand. Oh, you don't want to watch it with your spouse? You can watch it on your phone. You got more rooms than one in your house and unlimited Wi-Fi that we live in a, in a, in a place where it, it can be all about me for as long as I can kind of drag that out, as long as I can individually drag that out. And, as, and when we feed that, which kind of can become a monster, and when we feed that monster of isolationism and loneliness because we think that we've found a way to sort of tr- be the true us, it becomes more difficult to reach out. And the problem is, is that church is not a singular word. I know we love to say, I am the church, but the truth is, is you ain't the church because the church ain't one. There is no singular word for the church, ecclesia. By its definition, it has more than one person, so it has a group around it. It's already a part of the body. The hand can't cut the foot off and vice versa because we belong to one another Whether we like it or not, and because of that, we're part of a greater community, which is odd because we live in an individual society that praises the individual, that pushes the individual as much as they really want to lock themselves away in the closet, away from the rest of the world, and still have access to everything they want, they can now, more than ever before in the history of the world. How does the church compete with that? How do we compete with the reality that if you want to sit home and watch Paul White Ministries on YouTube, you can? And how how do I deal with that? Because I'm putting out that going, hey, feed, 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 eat. But I want to make it count. And so if Paul says, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision, what if? What Paul means is there can be no privatization of the faith that you have in Jesus, it will not exist in a vacuum. The thing that counts is to take who he is and what he has done in the middle of a world of individuals and push out to the world that which, here comes our four-letter word, faith that works, Paul said, through love. Did you hear that? Faith that works through love. Not faith that lays there. Not faith that's passive and goes, I'm just resting in Jesus. How many of you know we've used that resting in Jesus excuse right into apathy? I'm writing a new book on Jonah where Jesus says greater than Jonah. Jonah gets in a boat to go across the sea to Tarshish because he's running from the call of God and a storm follows Jonah across the sea. It's a storm of his own devising. But Jonah decides to face that storm by falling asleep in the boat. If you pull back from the 30,000 foot view you will see a man sleeping in a boat in the middle of a storm. Sound familiar? If not, go to the Gospels, where Jesus tells his disciples, let's go across to the other side. And they get in a boat, and as they're going across the sea, a storm breaks out across the Sea of Galilee. Jesus grabs a pillow, goes lays in the back of the boat, and goes to sleep. If you pull back from the 30,000 view, what do you have? A man going through a storm, laying in a boat, taking a nap. They're both the same guy, two different storms, but two different kinds of sleeping. Because not all rest is in Christ. Some rest is you too lazy to do anything. And sometimes the storm that chases you is not the storm that happens because you're in the will of God. It's the storm that happens because you've spurned the order of the spirit and chaos follows after it. And the chaos that follows after it is not the judgment of God. It's the judgment of seas and storms. And you live in them. And whenever you create that atmosphere, that follows you across that ocean. And so I found myself asleep in the boat thinking I was Jesus and learning that I'm Jonah. And that sometimes my sleep is not that I'm resting in Christ, though I've got three verses to quote with it. I'm actually sleeping in a storm I created because I didn't want to confront what I needed to confront about me. Not about you. It's always my storm. It's not me riding yours. It's not you riding someone else's. It's always you riding yours. And so learning to identify which storm you're in might be the great discernment of the hour. Some of us thought we were riding through storms of the devil we were riding through storms of our own cantankerousness and arrogance and meanness and isolationism and cold-heartedness. Sometimes the storm is definitely of the enemy. Those are the ones you get to learn how to rebuke. But the first thing you do before you learn how to rebuke is learn how to sleep. because Jesus doesn't go onto the sea to teach us rebuking lessons. He goes on to the sea to teach us sleeping lessons. He only rebukes after everybody in the boat so freaked out they don't know how to take a real rest, and sometimes you're going to encounter those people. And you might have to rebuke a storm or two. Paul, how am I going to know the difference? Congratulations, you're an adult in Christ. Nobody going to hold your hand to learn the difference. It's going to be you and Jesus, you and the Holy Spirit. That's why he lives in your house, not at your church. If you lived at your church, granted, you got six rough days. You get to church on 7th, things will work out for you. But he lives in your house and in your heart. Therefore, he gets to speak to you all the time. So what if Paul is saying it it doesn't matter if it's circumcision or not because the reality is, is they're both private and you don't have a private faith. You have a public faith. It's a faith that's supposed to be encountered. It's supposed to be rubbed the wrong way. It's supposed to be bothered by people. It's supposed to be agitated because then it gets to do something called love. And if you're not around anyone, there's no one to love and then your faith can't work its way out into love. And I have found I don't like a lot Of people (laughs) (laughs) and therefore I just try to stay away from them so that my faith doesn't have to work (laughs) listen I believe in telling the truth all right I think that we have faked it for too long and there's really no reason to fake it I hope I don't disappoint you in telling you I don't like the reality is is I I just trying to be honest with you about me and my journey I'm learning a lot of things about me, and I'm trying to lay those on the altar before the Lord. Because what I'm finding is that I'm not a follower of the Apostle Paul. I'm not a disciple of the Bible. I've reignited a passion for the Lord Jesus. But in a way that has nothing to do with the king that rides a horse and comes home and a sword coming out of his mouth... The man that hangs on a cross and takes a spear into his side and says, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. I've been confronted with him and I don't know what it takes to say, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do, but I want it. I want to make that count. I want to make it count that he could hang between heaven and earth and say, forgive my killers. They know not what they do. I want that love and I know that it happens at Calvary. And I know that it happens in the resurrection when you come out in him and he in you. And I know that's what I'm following is that Jesus. And I don't think it works in private. I just don't think it works if I lie about how I feel. And I don't say it out loud. Because then I don't have to be confronted with my truth. And I certainly don't have to be confronted with your truth. And it's that lack of honesty about who we are that's caused us to play the hypocrite role, to put the mask on that doesn't allow us to be the real us. And the storm we ride is the storm we create. So I want to make it count. You have to be careful. You have to be careful that the things you love are not actually fronts for the things you hate. Like we can say, I love the poor, I'm really concerned for the poor, but what our motivation is is I hate the rich, and I hate the system, and what comes across as loving the poor is a hatred for those that have more than you because it's easier to side with the underdog than the overlord. So what comes across as love is really closet hate masked in a passion that is void of the heart of the Holy Spirit. So that's the stuff the Holy Spirit puts me on the map to wrestle with to say, let us bring this to the surface because the faith that comes out of that that works out of that will be a faith that works properly. Watch where Paul goes. Let me reread 6. In Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything. The only thing that counts is faith working through love. Go to 13. Same chapter. Paul has a tendency to meander. I'll skip his meandering. I'll jump back to when he jumps back on the trail in 13. You were called to freedom, brothers and sisters. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for self-indulgence, but through love become slaves to one another. Well, that's, a, that's a big ask. But through love, become slaves to one another. For the whole law is summed up in a single commandment. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. I don't know if you're looking at it, but I want to remind you of two words that are the exact same. Listen to verse 6. The only thing that counts is faith working through love. Verse 13 through love become slaves to one another because the whole law is summed up in one commandment. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Paul doubles down. He goes back to the same theme and he brings it back to his audience which tells me that the whole circumcision argument wasn't about actually getting circumcised or not an argument that doesn't mean much for us in the modern church, but it doesn't have to mean the context it meant then because Paul transforms it in a snap when he says it really doesn't matter in the end anyway because I'm not talking about a faith that can be hidden like your circumcision can. I'm talking about a faith that works its way out as you love. Because, by the way, the greatest commandment of them all, what was supposed to work through love, me to be slaves over with you, under you, is because we are to love our neighbor as ourselves. And I don't want to resuscitate the law. We don't need to resuscitate the law. If you resuscitate the law, you bring down shame, condemnation, and guilt. You don't resuscitate the law. But I am not one that believes that the law was given ever to make men righteous. I don't think God tried it, and then when it didn't work, he went, oh, shucks. That was a big failure. I'll tell you what, let's just get rid of that. I'll go down there and do it myself. We'll die for him raise again three days later, and we'll see if that works. Because honestly, if that's the way God thinks, how do you know the cross is going to stick? I mean, if he's on Sinai and he goes, this is good, we're going to try this for a while, and then, oh, boy. And then when he comes down here and he dies on Calvary and he resurrects and he ascends to heaven I mean how do you know so I don't I don't, I don't believe it's, there's a God who's trying stuff he's, he's parceling out some ideas like, ah, that didn't work so all, oh well look at that no, it flooded the earth that, I thought that was going to work next time we'll burn it no because I don't think we realize how insulting we are to the God to God the immutable God The awesome God, the unchangeable God, in whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. All good and perfect gifts. Listen, all good and perfect gifts come from God above the Father of lights. The Father of lights. Wherever there is darkness, he's the Father of light. So I don't believe the law was ever given to make men righteous. I don't think that was in God's purview at all, and I don't think he said to Moses, take this down there and if they live right, this will make them righteous. The reality is, is that the law was transformed into that because that's what we, the product of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, do to rules. Yep. Is we take them and we think that if we can keep them, we're better than all the idiots that can't. Yep. It's just in our nature. Yep. So Paul gets to the end of Romans chapter 9 and he goes, Israel, who sought righteousness through the deeds of the law, couldn't find it. The Gentiles who sought it through faith found it because you can't find it through the deeds of the law. He goes, and I would be accursed from Christ if I could for my brethren that they would realize this, but they've established their own form of righteousness, denying the righteousness that's been provided to them by God. So Paul realized that what we actually do is we transform it and try to make it an instrument of righteousness. But I think the reality is, is it was given to him, Israel in from her neighbors and keep her safe. And here's the kicker. It was given to force Israel to at least treat her neighbor better than she would have without it. Don't steal from them. Don't lie to them. Don't cheat on them. Don't take their wife. What would you guys do if I didn't give you this? Probably all of that. What are you going to do if I give you this? All of that. We do, but at least with the law, there's a parameter that says stay off of their stuff. And, And we don't really ever dig in to the real intricacies of the law, not because we need to for righteousness, but because some of this is just straight offensive to our system. Like, for instance, when you get to the promised land, don't buy your property right up next to the property line of your neighbor. You should never own all of the land. Leave a buffer for the poor. Try that one out at your city council meeting. I think we need a theocracy. We need to go back to the Old Testament. You put a corridor between all of the property lines so that the homeless can have a place to pitch their tent. Think about it. Don't harvest your entire field. When you get to the corner, leave it. Leave the corners of your field, and if you miss the bag while you harvest, never reach down and pick up what missed the bag. That belongs to the people behind you that don't own their own field. That's a social safety net designed by God. We wouldn't want any of that. That would be rough. God didn't put that out there for righteousness. It was so we'd know how to treat our neighbor. What happens is we get the internalization of the Holy Spirit because we die when we meet Jesus. You're, you are dead and your life is hid with Christ and God. And the old us dies and the new us raises up in Christ and walks in true righteousness and true holiness. And what does true righteousness and true holiness look like but loving our neighbor the way Christ loves our neighbor? And as we work that out by loving our neighbor, we don't need the restrictions of the law because the law doesn't go far enough quite frankly let me give you an example you knew I had one in the ancient world which is much like the world of today let's be honest whenever someone does something to you you get to get back at them in a manner in which they not only don't get to do it to you but they don't get to do it to your kids and they don't get to do it to your grandkids how many of you have ever seen Liam Neeson You get, you got a, I got a certain set of skills that make me very dangerous, that make, me very da- make a person like me very dangerous to someone like you. You take my daughter, I'm going to destroy your entire geography. That's kind of the plot of that movie. We love that stuff. We flock to the theaters for that. Guy gets in a fight, he doesn't just fight back, he just burns a whole city block. <laughs> It's the way of Cain that when you kill Abel, seven times comes down on the head. What happens, God's warning to Cain is, watch out, system of man. This is what you're heading for. And by the time it gets to his grandson Lamech, it's 70 times. Because what happens is if you go down that road of paying people back for what they do to you, you don't pay them back tit for tat. You pay them back so they can't get you again. You go, that's just smart, right? And that's the way of the world. And so when God gave the law, God said, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. If a man kills you, you kill him. He takes your hand, you take his hand. In other words, let's pull the fences in a little bit, guys. It's not all about if they hit you, you burn their house down. It's if they hit you, you get to hit them back. And we used that on the playground. I used the fire out of that on the playground. Listen, you hit me, it's just fair game. I get to hit you. And we took it like it was written down in stone. Anybody else? I mean, we did. It was like, oh, he's right. You hit him, he gets to hit you back. You just got to stand there and take it. That's the law, right? No law, do whatever you want. Law, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. I guarantee you Israel looked at God and went, come on, man, this ain't no fun. How are we going to keep people off our back if all we do is give them what they give to us? And then came Jesus. And Jesus goes, you have heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I say to you. And if you've ever read the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus starts saying, but I say to you, you start trying to turn the volume down. Because <laughs> they get worse and worse. Because he's like, you heard this, but I say to you. And you go, no, 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 no. Give me Moses. (laughs) Don't give me Jesus. Give me Moses. Because Jesus goes, you've heard it said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, if a man smites you on the cheek, turn to him, your other one also. He goes, welcome to the way we do it where I come from. So the law took the reciprocity of man, pulled it into the fences of eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. The kingdom came along and took those fences all the way in and said, guess what? We don't even get to hit back. Now, you signed up to follow that Jesus. I've started saying this in churches because that's like a stunner. That's what they're saying. You thought you signed up for the Jesus that keeps you out of the flames of hell and flies you away on a horse someday, and you get to play a harp like you care and dance around in heaven on white picket fences in a golden street. But the Jesus you followed told you when you get hit, you don't get to hit back. You still want to stay in? See, I, I, I know our conversion rates would go down. Like how many of you here, all, everyone stand heads bowed, eyes closed. How many of you here <laughs> want not accept Jesus? Reciprocity's off the table. Your neighbor asked you to mow his yard, you mow it twice. I know I took some liberties with that one, but they didn't have mowers back then, but you, you understand? Followed you. What are you really doing? This is what I mean. I'm not, I'm not, we're not trying to, this is where we've missed this. Jesus is not elevating the law at the Sermon on the Mount. Well, I've heard that preach. When Jesus is trying to elevate it, put it out. Of, no, 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 no. Jesus is showing you that you've got to die to follow him. That is what he's saying. When you follow me, only dead people get to follow me. You die, and I raise you up. I don't resuscitate dead corpses. You don't have what you used to have. I make brand new people. Resurrection is not the resuscitation of what you used to be polished, shinier, the old you, but cleaner. It's a brand new man. You don't follow a Jesus who's in the rehab business of the old man. You follow a Jesus who's in the new creation business. Who spits into the dirt because that's how his father taught him to do it at the beginning. We reach down into the dirt to create the possibility of new life. We grab new life. We don't just reform the old. We make it brand new. It's why in Revelation he says, Behold, I don't make all things reformed. He goes, Behold, I make all things new. Because the resurrected Jesus is not about just reforming me, but making me new. So I want to make it count. And I want to make it count not in a way that makes brownie points in heaven. I don't believe in them. God doesn't have access to the old books. I want to make a count in a way that means I took it serious. I want to make a count in a way that means the old Paul's dead and the new Paul's alive in Christ. And he's not there yet, but he's not picking up his sword either. He's picking up his cross, and he's following Jesus. Because he's not a warrior for Christ. He's a servant for Christ. And he's found a way to work out his faith by becoming a slave of love over his neighbor, and I don't like it, but I signed up to follow him, and I want to make it count. I don't like it. There was a little more ease back in the build something big days I used to be in. Build something big, because at least you could go to a business seminar and get some tips. Pop in a... Motivational speaker and come up with a couple snappy principles. You could drop into your sermon like leaven. That'll help. I don't really want to go back, but sometimes I do. It's like a warm blanket of self. (laughs) Like a warm blanket of self. and I used to be ambitious. I used to want to change the world. I used to want to build something for the kingdom. And then I went back to the cross and I realized that you, you don't get anywhere until you die. And that's how I'm gonna make it count. You see, I, want, I love the church. I get ticked off at her, but I love her. And the Holy Spirit's taught me to keep my mouth off of another man's bride. Don't you ever talk about somebody else's spouse? The church is Christ's spouse. So watch what you say about her. You're not happy with her? You better bite your tongue sometimes. You're talking about his lover. So I'm careful. What I want, what I hope for us is that in this hour, we make this thing count. Why? What do we, what do we want? I want you to make it count, man. Do you know what you are? You're a son of the king. You're a daughter of heaven. The father looks at you coming down the road covered in hog slop. He never lets you go. He in your hand. He leaves his own party, come finds you out in the back field. He says, do you want you to come inside? make it count. Go love your neighbor as yourself. And if you hate yourself, at least avoid your neighbor. (laughs) Love your neighbor as yourself. It's what we teach our kids in Sunday school. It never really changes. It just gets harder to do it. And because it gets harder to do it, we come up with theological reasons why we don't think God really requires it. And if that won't work, we'll come up with constitutional reasons. And if that won't work, we'll come up with whatever reason we have to. Make it count. Do you know who you are? Do you know what's been done for you? Do you know the price that's been paid for you? Make it count. Not because if you don't, you'll go to hell. Not because if you don't, you won't be anointed. Not because if... No, but because if you don't, you didn't make it count. That ought to be its own thing. You just didn't make it It didn't mean what it could have meant. He chose you. Look at you, where you are, where you work, where you live, your life. He chose you. He picked you. He said, make it count. Here's your shot. Don't miss it. How do you make it count? He goes, none of the other stuff matters. All your private doctors, you got stuff figured out. You got the eschatology nailed. You got baptism down. You got the Bible memorized front back, Greek, Hebrew, every translation. You know it all. He goes, it doesn't matter. He goes, it doesn't have anything to do with whether it was in here. Circumcision, non-circumcision. That's Paul's argument. It's the same thing. It doesn't matter about the privacy of what you know. It's working out of you through love, the faith that believes there can be a better tomorrow than there is a today. and It might start if I changed my my little corner of the world. See, because I don't have the ambition to change the world anymore. I don't think I need it. I don't think it belongs to us. I think it's a trick of the devil and I think it's selfish. But I do have the ambition to change mine. Because if I can change mine, then I might love you. And I want to make it count. Father, I thank you. I don't know why I subject myself to getting in front of your sheep and wrestling with who you are and <laughs> what you are. But you and I have been going down this road long enough that I finally just embraced my gift and who I am. What I really hope tonight, Father, is that I'm learning something about making account and I'm praying that so are your people. John 13 you said to your disciples they shall know that you are my disciples because you love one another they, you didn't say that people will know because we got it right or we figured it out but because we love them and I pray Father help us make it count a faith That works its way out through love in Jesus name James said show me your faith without your works I'll show you my faith by my works it's not a work sermon it's I'll show you the Jesus I believe in because I'll love you the way Jesus would have loved you I want that anybody else I'm not here to inspire you. I'm not here to motivate you. I'm certainly not here to change you. I'm here to celebrate the mystery that is you. In this hour, that's what the Father's put in my heart. When you walk into these places, celebrate the mystery that are my people. Lay food in front of them that they might eat. We are not responsible for what you eat. We are responsible for what food we put in front of you. So I hope that when you leave tonight, you'll say, at least I'm thinking about Jesus and the fact that Jesus made account count for me. May I go out and make account for him? God bless you. love you, church.